just because they're in prison doesn't mean they don't deserve self-defense. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A new report from the Prison Policy Initiative called Arrest, Release, Repeat shows that almost 5 million people in the U.S. spend some time in jail every year. At any given moment, about 600,000 people are living in local U.S. jails, and only one-third are accused of violence. Those nearly 5 million people amount to just under 1 in 50 adults in the U.S. Of the approximately 5 million people, 930,000 were arrested at least twice, and 430,000 were arrested three or more times. Of those arrested and booked two or three times in a given year, 49% earn less than $10,000 a year, and 52% have a diagnosis of substance abuse disorder. 88% of people booked more than once weren't arrested for a serious violent crime. Though African Americans constitute 13% of the U.S. population, they make up to 42% of people booked three or more times. Becoming a cop is out of fashion in the U.S. According to the Police Executive Research Forum's recent survey of 400 law enforcement agencies, 66% of U.S. police departments reported a fall in job applications. Also, the number of applications for the job of FBI Special Agent declined from 68,000 in 2009 to 11,000 in 2018. In 2015, public opinion of police officers hit a 22-year low, according to a Gallup poll. Thanks to well-known racist incidents involving police, including the terrorizing and killing of people in communities of color by police, and cops' treatment of people as enemy combatants, African Americans' confidence in police has plummeted. Los Angeles Police Department Deputy Chief of Police Stephen Downing has suggested no longer giving the police military equipment and training, halting civil asset forfeiture, which enables the cops to steal people's property, and establishing civilian oversight. On August 22nd, Texas executed Larry Swearingen who was convicted of murder even though numerous pathologists concluded that at the time of the victim's death, Swearingen had been in jail for weeks because of unpaid parking tickets. Further, there was no evidence of his DNA at the crime scene and blood from an unidentified man was present under the victim's fingernail. Moreover, the forensic testimony in his case was scientifically baseless and wouldn't be permitted today. Despite the extensive evidence of Swearingen's innocence, the state refused to reopen his murder conviction. Swearingen was a client of the Innocence Project, which advocates for a nationwide moratorium on the death penalty because of, quote, the intolerably and unconscionably high risk of executing an innocent person as illustrated by the 165 people exonerated in the U.S. after being sentenced to death, unquote. During his 20 years on death row, Swearingen maintained his innocence. His last words expressed forgiveness for the state officials who took his life. He said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. It's been one year since the August 2018 national prison strike. 
this week, we feature a talk from Ben Turk and Amani Sawari, both of whom were important outside supporters of last year's national prison strike. This talk took place at Ben the Bars 2019, a prison abolitionist conference focusing on the initiatives of prisoners themselves. This conference, this year held in Lansing, Michigan, was the follow-up to a Bend the Bars organized in 2016 in Columbus, Ohio, in the lead-up to the first national prison strike. With two national strikes between these events, the panel was an opportunity to reflect on the developments of the prisoners' movement, the achievements and failures of outside solidarity efforts, and the future of prison-led organizing. Here's Ben and Amani. I've been involved in prisoner solidarity and abolition work for a while. I think I first started getting involved in 2010. I was living in Ohio at the time, so I was working with the Lucasville Amnesty, uh, the survivors of the Lucasville Uprising. And in 2016, I was running a website called supportprisonerresistance.net, where I was trying to archive, me and a couple of other people were trying to archive everything that was going on as far as, uh, and then also trying to pull in like historical stuff. That website still exists. It hasn't been updated for a long time because we've moved on to other ways of doing that, but uh, there's useful stuff in that archive if you want to look it up. Right now, I'm working with the Fires Inside Collective. Uh, we put together a like a report back of uh, various different prison rebels from across the country, all you know, speaking on 2016 that I think helped inform some of the strategy going forward in 2018 and since then, and um, in the, per- the Perilous Chronicle Collective. My name is Amani Sawari, and I first got involved in this abolitionist work right after graduating from college. I graduated in 2016. I went to the University of Washington. Uh, as Alejo said, I was born and raised here in Detroit, Michigan, and then I went to school in Washington. There is when I got a Twitter request from a just a Twitter page, prison slavery page, saying, hey, we'd love for you to take on our demands. Did you hear about the Lee County uprising? And I said, oh my gosh, yes, I would love to do that. <laughs> and so I started writing on their behalf, uh, and all of a sudden, all of these um, requests came in from BBC, NBC, Democracy Now!, and I got the privilege of being able to represent Jailhouse Lawyer Speak and all of the other uh, prison resistance groups that were participating in the national prison strike. They got to know me as a result of my work with the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition on the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March. So I wrote a newsletter uh, for them leading up to the march, and then during the national prison strike, I wrote another newsletter. The first was called uh, No Shackles, and the second one is Solid Black Fist. You can find the archives of those newsletters on sawarime.org. And so I continue to push the 10 demands. Out of the national prison strike came the new suffrage movement, which is the Right to Vote campaign. I currently work as the national coordinator for the Right to Vote campaign, for which we have 11 states that have introduced legislation to restore uh, impacted people's voting rights all across the country. So that demand was actually seen as the most radical of all the demands, and it's incredible to see that that one took off the quickest out of all the demands. So there's my introduction. All right, so uh, 2016. Um, I'm gonna start by just talking about kind of the formation of uh, this decision. The Free Alabama Prisoners, Kinetic Justice, uh, Melvin Ray, and uh, Dati Khalid uh, formed the Free Alabama Movement, and they were starting to do hunger strikes and strikes in Alabama that were really successful starting in 2014. 
I got in touch with them and connected them with other prisoners that I knew. Once they were talking on the phone with each other, they were like, we think it's time to start organizing for a national action. Uh, this was also, there were hunger strikes in California that were really big and people were talking on a like national scale informally, I think for a while prior to this. Um, but once that fire got started and we started reaching out to other support networks, uh, we heard many voices from inside who said, yes, now is the time for a national strike. Let's try to bring this together. Let's make it happen. That was in probably the summer of 2015. And uh, we started doing regular conference calls and things like that, just trying to build a network and make decisions about how to go forward. Um, and one thing that we learned and that we already, already knew, but that I always try to emphasize, is that resistance against prisons is constant and continuous. It's not like there was nothing happening and then there was a national strike. Every single day, somewhere in this country, someone is fighting against the cage that they're being held in. And sometimes it's collective, sometimes it's organized, sometimes it's spontaneous. And so one thing that happened in the spring of 2016 was uh, on March 12th, Holman Prison in Alabama had two uprisings in a 24-hour period. And these were really explosive, uh, unpredictable events. Um, people, it started with a fight between prisoners that got out of hand and then the guards came in to try to control it and the prisoners turned on them. The warden ended up getting stabbed and it got national media coverage and they took over a dorm and it was a, it was a very large event. And it was uh, surprising to us because we we're all organizing and talking about like how we're gonna try to do this national strike and meanwhile people are starting things off. Um, and they were trying to start the cell block on fire and all kinds of things were going on. And so then after that, uh, things were continuing to happen. And here in Michigan, uh, there were a series of food strikes at Kinross and other prisons where uh, people would just refuse to eat, to sit down and have the meals together, not like a full hunger strike, but rather a demonstration of unity. And I think that's really uh, instructional because the fact that they were able to demonstrate unity six months before the strike probably informs a lot about what happened on September 9th here in Michigan. Um, and then on April, then we finally got the, the like call to action together. We sent it out. It, it went out uh, a few days before prisoners in Texas went on strike. And Texas is a big state. It's got a lot of prisons. And it's really hard to communicate with people there and to know what's actually going on. Um, but there was like rolling work stoppages at various facilities across Texas for, a, I think, about a month then. Then on May 1st, uh, again, in Alabama, uh, the legislature was trying to put through a bill to expand their prison system and build a bunch of supermax prisons to replace their existing facilities. And prisoners went on strike, got the national attention, and killed that bill. So we're seeing action on the inside of prisons impacting legislative policies and things like that. Um, on June 7th in Wisconsin, 30 prisoners at a restrictive housing unit in Waupun went on a hunger strike. Um, and in Wisconsin, I was there at the time trying to do solidarity. After only 10 days, they started force feeding people. Um, and so that hunger strike for some people went on for 250 days of being force fed. I had done hunger strike support for Hassan, uh, Sadiq Abdullah Hassan in uh, Ohio at the Supermax. Uh, he's one of those survivors of the Lucasville Uprising and um, Keith Lamar and other other prisoners and you know we 
often don't win in hunger strikes. Like it's very difficult to actually get anything out of um, the authorities other than small concessions. But I've never been in a situation where they're just force feeding people and letting it sit in that kind of stalemate. So that was, uh, those were some things that were going on even before the hunger strike or before the, the national strike was uh, kicking off. And during that time, we were also making decisions. Like the prisoners were talking to each other, especially in Alabama. The amount of conversation, they had like a blog talk radio show. I believe those archives are still available. And they'd be great if you want to go and learn about this. You can hear prisoners calling into the show, talking to each other all on contraband phones. And you really get an idea of where they're coming from what the what they're thinking about but some of the decisions that I think are interesting contrasts between 2016 and 2018 is in 2016 uh, people decided to let each location set their own demands and um, set the the tactics and the duration of their action all of that was up to whoever whoever was getting something together somewhere they had to make those decisions themselves the assumption was that they're the only ones who know what you know, make sense for them. And it was a more decentralized, like, structure of how the strike was being called and organized. On September 9th, some of the things that came out of that decentralized decision-making structure was the fact that on September 7th, prisoners in Florida and multiple facilities pro started protests, and when they were attacked by guards, they kicked the guards off the block and they tore the prisons up. And then on September 9th itself, similar thing happened here at Kinross. And so those are some examples of what can happen when the organization of something is more open, spontaneous, decentralized, um, but there's also a lot of limitations that come with that. Um, there were a lot of prisoners who afterward reported back to us for the uh, fire inside zine saying that they didn't know what was going on. They were protesting, they were refusing to work, they didn't know how long they were going to try to hold that out. They didn't know whether or not anyone on the outside was aware. You know, they were sending letters out, but they weren't getting to people. And so that, like, lack of communication and structure has drawbacks and also can create opportunities. Um, yeah, there was a big hunger strike at Merced uh, in California that I think had some really powerful solidarity actions with it because it's near uh, Oakland and people were able to act from there. There were a number of solidarity actions all across the country. There was a, a media blockade that was very difficult to overcome, and that's one of the challenges that I think we brought into the next strike. But there were also like a continuation of struggle, especially in Alabama. You know, the Free Alabama movement was trying to um, maintain a certain form of tactics. They wanted to do work strikes, sometimes uh, hunger strikes and uh, you know, exert this economic leverage against the DOC. Meanwhile, other prisoners who you know, were not directly affiliated with uh, FAM were you know, fighting back physically and defending themselves against the prison system. There were guards who were attacked. There were guards who were killed. And then on September 26th, guards refused to go into work, um, which I think was a uh, breaking point for a lot of people. Some uh, kinetic from the Free Alabama movement said that, you know, this, this is at Holman, he was there, he said that guards were telling him that they were refusing, they were going to not come into work in solidarity with the prisoners and what the prisoners were going through. Other people, uh, the guards, you know, said that they were 
not going into work because they didn't want to get because they weren't feeling safe and they weren't protected because that was the level of conflict that was going on there at that time. On October 1st, multiple guards just quit all at the same time. And we've noticed this like this. This is an interesting thing to highlight because um, in Wisconsin, the research that we're doing that I'm doing right now with um, Forum for Understanding Prisons, the guard turnover is incredibly high. So if we're as abolitionists thinking of different points where we can push on the prison system and crack it and break it. You know, one of the points that I don't I think we don't think about as much, you know, we think about policy or we think about supporting prisoners or supporting prison rebels. We don't think about how guards are needed to maintain these these systems and these facilities. And it is I'm not trying to like talk about reaching across the aisle and like, you know, befriending guards necessarily, though I think there's some potential to that. But more importantly, just recognizing that people hate working in prisons. And the prisons are desperate. Like a lot of prisons are understaffed and are having trouble keeping people working there. That's a pressure point that can really fracture things and uh, it's something to be strategically aware of. So all of that was going on. And then on November 5th, Donald Trump was elected president and the number of struggles and fights that we all were involved in multiplied immediately. And I think the biggest, I don't wanna say failing, but the most heartbreaking thing about the 2016 prison strike is that with the exception of a few places, the solidarity and the continuous, the continued fight against retaliation and repression was not strong enough. The guys from Alabama spent years in solitary confinement. My friends in Ohio were put on all kinds of restrictions and had all kinds of blocks. They've been in solitary confinement for decades, so that's not new to them, but um, the other things that they went through. And so the ability to maintain relationships with people in prison and to stand and fight for them and consider them part of our movement and allies of ours who need to be defended when they're attacked uh, it needs to be stronger, and I, and I hope that had the whole world not gone crazy <laughs> with Donald Trump and then the airport protests and then everything else that went on immediately after that and all the anti-fascist organizing, which is vital and necessary, I, I believe that we could have had the energy to actually do that solidarity in a more robust and successful way. And so that is like the thing that I want to emphasize going forward. Like anything that we're doing as far as prison rebellions go, as far as supporting these kinds of things, we need to be prepared for retaliation and ready to defend people and defend them as though they are your friend who is sitting next to you here. Just because they're in prison doesn't mean they don't deserve self-defense. The 2018 National Prison Strike, as I said, uh, got started. It really ignited out of the Lee County uprising. I like to call it, well, I don't like to call it this, but the Lee County massacre, because a lot of people forget. Several people died, seven men died, and 22 people were injured, a lot of them critically injured as a result of fights that were ongoing for over seven hours because of staff neglect. They watched the fights go down. Um, there were gladiator switches that happened, so people were moved from cells that they were more or less comfortable in to cells with rival groups. 
fights broke out and uh, it just went on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, people were seeking medical attention. Bodies were dragged to the edge of the gate. No one did anything for hours. And so I just really want to highlight uh, that because prisoners saw that really as this isn't unique to South Carolina. This isn't unique to Lee County Prison. This happens all over the country. So because of that, they said, you know, we need to do another national prison strike. And Ben pointed out some of the key differences. In this strike, there were some unified demands. Now, some states had already had things like good time. They'd already reversed truth and sentencing. But because there were, a uni there were unified 10 demands, things were included. So they whittled down 35 demands that they wanted down to 10 just to make it succinct and easy for people. And uh, I'm sure you all are, are aware of what those 10 demands are. But uh, just to go over it briefly, and into prison slavery, uh, reversing truth and sentencing, bringing back good time, bringing back Pell Grants, uh, end it with the right to vote, uh, repealing the Prisoner Litigation Reform Act. Uh, so really just removing policies that have been very oppressive, bringing back policies that could contribute to people's lives, and then uh, restoring people's right to vote was a really big one. Number 10, super radical. How could that ever happen, right? So there were four main ways that people could participate in the national prison strike. So these were outlined very clearly as well. The first way was work strikes, so refusing to go into work. Knowing that not every prisoner had a job assignment, prisoners couldn't always participate in that. So the second way was sit-ins. Prisoners could gather together, sit in a common area peacefully, and just sit there and wait until lockdown. Third way was boycotts. This is something that most prisoners did take advantage of participating in. They could boycott commissary, they could boycott the telephones. Uh, and then last, but definitely not least, because this is something that everyone could participate in if you didn't have access to the privilege of having a job, if you didn't have access to general population to participate in a sit-in, if you didn't have the privilege of purchasing from commissary, you were served food and you could deny taking that food to participate in the national prison strike. So I have a, a map and it just shows the different regions where people participated in the national prison strike. In addition to these states, there was also participation in Canada and Nova Scotia, Canada. We also got solidarity letters from Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails and prisoners in uh, Greece. And so this got international attention uh, as a result of how widespread that it went. So. I'll just point out a couple states' participation. Michigan participated. Prisoners decided to boycott the telephones at Alger Correctional Facility. Uh, we saw as a result of the boycotting of the telephones that happened all over the country, phone rates decreased. Specifically in Michigan, phone rates decreased by 10 whole cents, which is huge. And then we also saw large participation in South Carolina, where six facilities participated, Broad River Correctional Facility, Lee County Correctional Facility, which is where it all started, uh, McCormick, Kershaw, Liber, and FCI Edgefield. We also saw five facilities participate in Florida. And so in Washington, I also want to point out, because that's where I was at the time, we saw participation in the Northwest Detention Facility. So immigrants participated in the national prison strike, which in the demands, we did call for immigrants to be a part of this. And it was amazing to see immigrant detainees participating as well. And they're what put Washington on the map. We did have noise demos outside of the detention facility nearly every single day. We also had a poetry slam outside of the detention 
facility. So outside participation and outside solidarity was very prevalent. Throughout August 1st, all the way through September 9th, we saw letter writing nights, movie showings, noise demos, uh, rallies. There were a lot of rallies outside of Lee Correctional Facility. Um, and people were just looking for ways to get involved. So because of the media attention that we got, uh, we were able to see people that, that didn't even know about the prison strikes, even inside the prison, find out about it just by hearing about it on the radio. And so that was really exciting. I wanna point out some of the successes that we saw as a result of the national prison strike. Prisoners were able to demonstrate their solidarity and their ability to organize across state and international borders. So even with the retaliation that we faced in 2016, prisoners were not afraid to stand up again and do this again. Uh, prisoners participated in actions across 22 regions of the country and at least 35 prisons in the all across the United States. Prisoners showed solidarity overseas. We also saw the national narrative surrounding prisoner resistance change. We used to see prison resistance as this illegitimate chaos that needed to be suppressed. And now, as been mentioned, prison resistance is seen as a legitimate way to reform policies. And so prisoners are using that as a tool to make laws change uh, on their behalf. We also saw mainstream media catch on from Democracy Now! to ABC News. Uh, we saw criminal justice reform rise from a level of being just prison demands to actually rising to the level of national importance, being a part of national conversations. And just recently we saw, just last weekend, some uh, very clever similarities between Bernie Sanders' new criminal justice reform proposal and the 10 demands. Demand one and three, we can see directly. Um, demand number one was into prison slavery. Demand number three was the Prisoner Litigation Reform Act being repealed. So that doesn't allow prisoners to take advantage of our judicial systems until they exhaust grievance procedures. And a lot of times the internal grievance process is so long. And if you miss one step, let's say you didn't turn in your step three within 10 days, your whole case is dropped. And then you don't have a chance to, to sue, even if it's in a case of assault, damage to property, whatever it is, if you miss one step in your grievance process, that's over. So we saw demands number one and three um, established in the Prisoner's Bill of Rights that Bernie wants to put together. Uh, we also see demand number two. That's a call for slave wages to be ended. Bernie wants to pay... Uh, living wage for their labor. I also want to say I'm not endorsing Bernie Sanders in any way. I just want to draw the connections between the proposal that we've seen come out of a presidential campaign to just a year ago, what prisoners were asking for. Um, demand numbers four, five, and six, which relate to over-sentencing, overcharging, racial gang enhancements. Uh, we want to see an end to mandatory minimums. Bernie put that in his proposal as well. Demands number seven, eight, and nine, which are commit he uh, addresses by wanting to invest in alternative programs and um, more rehabilitative programming in the prison population. And the famous demand number 10, the right to vote, he wants to restore the right to vote to prisoners. So it's exciting to see that just one year after the these demands were published, we're able to see this in this national discussion, and we're able to see those those actions validated on such a large scale. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.